All right, you guys ready? Ready for more torture? No, this is amazing. Keep it up. I, I used to teach middle school and um, I, I have a very self-deprecating sense of humor. So I'd make some fun of myself frequently. And, but the middle schoolers didn't, didn't get it. And so they would think I would need an encouragement. And so they would, they would always give me a compliment after, no, you're not dumb, Mr. Huffley. You're, you're amazing. Then I tried it with my high schoolers and they, oh yeah. Yeah. All right. So how how does all of this relate to to baptism and confirmation? So first the covenant stuff, then the temple stuff, and then new creation. Kind of trying to pull it all back together. So remember the covenant with Abraham, God promised that he would extend his blessings. He would yeah, bless all nations through Abraham and his family. This is God's way of gathering humanity back that had been heading east, gathering humanity back and bringing them back west into the into the Holy of Holies through this covenant family. Now, uh, so with the uh, lost my train of thought. This is dangerous. Baptism is a new entry into this covenant family. Jesus, the descendant of, of Abraham, the, the, the promised descendant of Abraham, um, dies on our behalf, and through baptism, we're baptized into Christ. We join Christ, and by joining Christ, we become descendants of Abraham, and, and we, we inherit the blessings that, that belong to a descendant of Abraham. And to uh, even more than a descendant of Abraham, we become children of God because we're adopted into Christ, Christ the Son of God. By being joined into Christ, we become sons and daughters of God. So if Abraham's descendants receive the blessings of the covenant, and all the more should sons and daughters of God uh, receive uh, the blessings. In, in particular, we inherit the, the resurrection. If we die, if we ba are baptized into Christ, into his death, will also rise with him to new life. So that's the, the covenant stuff. Uh, new temple. Uh, so baptism, there were, there were lots of kinds of baptisms in the, in the Old Testament. Like you can read through the book of Leviticus for different kinds of impurities. You would have to wash it with water. Um, there, there was only one washing, though, where another person would wash you, and that was if you were being consecrated a priest. If you were being consecrated a priest, you would be baptized, and then you would be clothed with the, the vestments. Now, being, being, uh, being baptized and consecrated a priest would prepare you for service in God's tabernacle or in God's temple when that became permanent. So too, being baptized into Christ, the new temple, we are prepared as all baptized Christians as priests for service in his temple. What that looks like, that doesn't mean we're all priests like Father Hall is a priest. Um, we, we were baptized in Christ where we share in Christ's priesthood so we can offer sacrifices of praise. We can offer our sufferings as sacrifices. And we can participate in extending God's blessings to all the nations. So that's our, our priesthood. We're baptized, prepared for that role of service. Uh, also, um, back at the, the tabernacle, 
Oh, where's a good picture? Uh, you would have the the priest would before approaching the altar would bathe, would wash in the water. Jesus does the same thing with his disciples at the Last Supper. He washes their feet and says, "Unless you do this, you have no part in me." That's uh, priesthood language. So baptism also serves serves in the sense that we're cleansed. Uh, we were washed of our impurities, our sins, and prepared for for to be able to go into God's presence in the temple. In the temple. I think that was all I was going to say. Oh, oh, wow, wow. Last thing, being baptized, when you're baptized, uh, you're either immersed in water or poured water on you. And then they always say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Being baptized in the name uh, has temple connotations to it. So one is uh, calling on the name of the Lord in the Old Testament denoted offering sacrifice in the temple. I will call on the name of the Lord. When that's said, it means I'm going to offer sacrifice in the temple. Uh, also, the name, uh, the temple was the place where the name of God dwelt. Solomon said, I will build a house for your name. So being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you become this new temple of the Holy Spirit. Temple because you're joined into Christ. You're not a separate temple from him. But you become a temple of the Holy Spirit where God's name dwells. You can imagine God's Shekinah, cloud of glory, descending on you at your baptism. Uh, God dwelling in you. And so you're not just taken up into God, joined in the life of, of the Trinity, but also God is brought into you, so to speak, where his name dwells. All right. Oh, uh, new creation. Last point. Uh, we saw water throughout the Old Testament has kind of two sides to it. It either causes death or it gives life. I mean, this is just general experience. Water can either sustain you or it can kill you. Uh, in the Old Testament, we saw this in the beginning with the waters, the, the, the deep, this dark abyss of water. Uh, but then from that water or through that water, however you want to imagine it, land and life came. Um, Jonah, I wasn't planning on talking about Jonah, but just popped into my head. Jonah uh, was fleeing from God. He didn't, want to, he didn't want to go preach to the Assyrians. So he's fleeing from God on a boat. The big storm comes up and, and he tells the sailors to throw him into the water. And then Jonah, Jonah is swallowed by a fish. Uh, this is poetic expression for he experienced, or at least came close to experiencing death. Uh, you can look at Jonah's prayer of being delivered from death. He's, he's sinking into the abyss, uh, being enclosed by the waters. So this is waters associated with death. We see this with the, the uh, exodus from Egypt. Israel is saved through water, whereas Egyptians are, are destroyed by the water, the flood. All right, I think I'm repeating things for you. So we enter into the waters. By entering into the waters, we die with Christ. And by exiting the waters, we, um, we rise with Christ. Uh, 
John the Baptist when he was, uh, no, that's a tangent. Moving on. All right, so why, why the sacraments? Oh, I forgot to, this is a good pausing moment. Can you guys bear with me a second while I pull up the anonymous questions in case anybody had them? I'm not just playing games. Okay. Uh, when do you need our sponsors to start coming with us to RCA? Oh, great. Very reasonable question. Um, let me talk to Father Walmeyer and then get back with you next week. Is that, is that okay? Uh, next, did man write this account, creation of earth, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Yes. So this is what we believe as Catholics, is that all of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, but the, the point I wanted to make is that it, that doesn't do away with the role of the human author. The human author really writes as a human author and like um, his own thoughts, his own writing style. Um, but in some mysterious way, the Holy Spirit leads him to write what he wants. All right. What is the symbolism of this account in mass, such as the incense? Oh, beautiful. The incense is that symbolism for the smoke that ascended on Mount Sinai. Yes. So a lot of this symbolism is carried over into the architecture of Catholic churches, but also into the liturgy of the church. Uh, so one thing I, I looked in our church, there's not there's not much of this here, but you can see it in other churches. Uh, as you approach the sanctuary, you start to see more garden imagery. Um, in our, well, in a small way in our church, we usually have flowers or plants around the altar in the sanctuary. It's like the Garden of Eden. Um, so the the pews would represent, I guess, the, the outer courts, and then you proceed into the Holy of Holies where the, the well, like the crucifix is up in the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle is there where God dwells. Uh, the incense uh, would symbolize both our prayers rising up to God, but also God's presence among us. I'm sure there's a lot. I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Washing, washing of hands before offering the sacrifice. The vestments. Yeah. Um, I heard this. I don't know if it's true because I, I couldn't find it in any other sources. But the priests in the Old Testament, they would wear vestments with with earthly imagery on them, like plants in different colors to symbolize different stones and stuff. And what that symbolized was the priest not only brought the prayers of the people. And representing the people, but he carried all of creation into God's presence so, to worship on behalf of creation. I mean, it's cool. I hope it's true. I, I just don't know for sure if it is. All right. Any any other questions? Thoughts? All right. So this this is the I started with the big picture, kind of seeing how it fits into the the big plan of God's offer of salvation, but now getting kind of zooming in on the sacraments. Why why the sacraments? And then, then moving to what baptism and confirmation mean for us, both as individuals and as a community, and then, and then we'll end. All right, so why, why would God do it this way? Like, why, why would he establish the tabernacle with all the incense and this strange symbolism? Um, why, why wouldn't, yeah. Ultimately, I have no idea. But we can, we can take some stabs at it. So one, one there's natural sacraments. So by sacrament, I just mean in general, 
anything visible or physical that conveys something invisible. Um, a clear example of this is language and words. Um, there's a difference, there, a distinction between the meaning that a word conveys and the word itself. Uh, um, this, this allows for translation. I can say the same, I wish I could speak a different language because then I could do it. But you can convey the same meaning with two different words. So the words, the sounds, the physical sounds are different from the, the meaning they convey. The meaning, actually, I mean, it's, it's not something you can grab hold of. It's not, uh, it's not something you can actually have apart from words. Um, but still, the meaning is distinct from the words, so it's very incarnate. Um, meaning takes flesh, so to speak, in words. Another example, oh, uh, creation. Uh, God communicates himself and reveals himself through the visible creation. Like I look at a Nebraska sunset. I used to say this all the time when I wasn't in Nebraska. I would gloat about Nebraska sunsets because I just think they're amazing. But you look at a Nebraska sunset and you just see something of the beauty of God. Now, of course, God's beauty is not. I mean, it's not a Nebraska sunset. It's not something visible. It's not something physical like that. But still in that physical Thing, you can you can get a glimpse of the beauty of God's invisible beauty. Uh, the human face is uh, is another sacrament. By looking at somebody's face, you see the person, but the person isn't. I mean, you want to reduce the person to their face, um, but you can't really separate the person from the face either. So the these are just examples of natural um, sacraments, and we just live and swim. In, in natural sacraments. So it makes sense that God would also deal with us on a supernatural level in a sacramental way. So God, God set the precedent for this in the Old Testament. There's tons of examples. The tabernacle already talked about it. Um, through the Exodus, God uh, led the people as a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. Now, does God actually look like smoke and fire? No. God first appeared to Moses as a burning bush. Does God actually look like a burning Of course not. So, but still, by encountering that burning bush, Moses was really encountering God in some mysterious way. The bread of the presence um, made God present in some, some unique way, even though when they touch the bread, it's not like they're touching God. And in Jesus, uh, Jesus is, is a sacrament in this broad sense. Uh, you could look at Jesus in two different ways. I mean, he didn't walk around with a halo above his head. You could look at Jesus uh, as a, just a, another man, just a guy, just a collection of cells and tissue. Or some people could see more in Jesus, even though they were encountering the same physical stuff, they could see something deeper in Jesus. Most especially on the cross. That's a cool thing about the Gospel of Mark. Uh, nobody can recognize who Jesus is as the divine son of God until he's crucified and dead on the cross. And then the centurion finally says, truly, that was the son of God. It coincides with the John thing about God will truly make himself known from the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the cross. So God at his lowest point, Jesus at his lowest point, somehow makes God visible most clearly. Which I think is cool. So that's that's a sacrament, making uh, something invisible, intangible, being made present through something physical. 
And it's not like we want to do away with the humanity of Jesus in order to get to the real stuff behind it. Uh, we don't move beyond the cross to get to, to God. By encountering the human Jesus, you encounter God. Scripture is another example. By encountering the human words, the very human words of Scripture um, that you know went through went through long processes of editing and being compiled in a book and whatever. By encountering these very human words, you encounter God's speech. All right, so that's sacraments in general. Now, what does so that was just trying to make the case that sacraments. I mean, it makes sense that God would would interact with us and and save us through sacraments. So what does this mean specifically about, what does baptism and confirmation mean for us? So first is individuals. Uh, baptism is the sacrament of, of repentance. So repentance just means this turning around. You can think of humanity as we sin, we're heading east. I don't know what direction is east. Say it's east. Oh, it is this one. So we're heading east uh, when we sin. Repentance just means turning around. You have to turn around to go west, back to the to the Holy of Holies. This is the first thing that Jesus says when he comes on the scene. He says, repent, and um, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So this turning around. But repentance in, in Scripture is connected with baptism. So you can look as one example at Acts 2. Um, Peter's speech after Pentecost, after Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, and they received the Holy Spirit. Man, I'm giving you like the entire Bible in a night. Wow. So he gives a speech, and then the people are cut to their hearts as they're listening, and they say, Peter, what should we do? And what does Peter say? Repent and be baptized. So repentance and baptism go together. Uh, how do you repent? You repent by being baptized. Now, if you're already baptized and you started heading east, how can you repent? Well, that's the sacrament of confession, but that's a that's the topic of, a, of another night. But baptism is the sacrament of repentance. Uh, it's also the, the, the sacrament of being washed clean, becoming a new creation. You go through the waters and you come out clean. Uh, later in Acts, when, when Paul's uh, uh, retelling his conversion story, and you know he's on the, on the road to um, Damascus, and Jesus appears to him and says, why are you persecuting me? And then Paul becomes blind, and then he's led to, shoot, what's his name? Ananias, thank you. Ananias, and then Ananias says, get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away. So he, he Ananias doesn't even say repent. Then going around, around persecuting the church, he doesn't say repent. He says, be baptized, have your sins washed away. So the, the two are joined together. You're washed clean by, by um, baptism. Another thing is we're giving gifts for service. So just as a priest or ordained and consecrated through baptism for service in the tabernacle and the temple, we are consecrated as priests through baptism and equipped with gifts for service in the temple to extend God's blessings to all creation. So me 
Uh, you might be saying, wow, Mark, you're an amazing teacher. It's incredible. <laughs> or at least you're, wait, I cut you off. <laughs> Good. Thank you. That's the greatest compliment I've ever received, except from the middle schoolers. Um, so, uh, you know, I might have the gift for teaching. Other people have the gift for administration. They're really good at organizing things. Some people have the gifts, like more extraordinary gifts, like the gifts of healing, um, gifts. I, mean, I think there's pretty much as many gifts as there are people, and you can have many gifts. Uh, so, so a cool thing about the Christian life is trying to discern your gift, the thing that brings you joy. Um, kind of, kind of two rules of thumb for discerning your gift is where do you see a need that you can fill and does it give you joy in filling that need well then you that's your gift or at least one of your gifts uh in the church so all christians are given this gift it's not just priests and religious who are given gifts to go serve and spread the gospel or made new creation while washed clean uh martin luther martin luther said a lot of great things i'm not here to bash on martin luther uh, he said some things that, of course, we can't agree with. One thing was uh, that being saved is like, like you're, well, actually, I don't, I don't think there's evidence he actually ever said this, but it kind of sums up his thought, uh, that we're dung, we're piles of dung covered with snow. So we're sinners to our core, and what God does in Christ is covers us with grace. And so when he looks at us, he doesn't see the dung, he sees the snow covering us. The Catholic view is very very different. We're not, we're no longer dung. When, when we're baptized and we're, when we're washed by grace, we're no longer dung. We're new creation. We're, we're washed clean through and through. And then when we head east again and we mess up, um, then we return to, to confession. We're, we're washed clean again. Um, but the point is we're, we're new creation. We're, we're, we're like embers, as I talked about before, logs thrown in the fire become embers where we radiate God's divine life. Then we're also given the gift of eternal life. So Paul will say, when you're baptized, you, you die with Christ. And if you die with Christ, you rise with Christ. You will rise as the promise of the, the resurrection. Um, then last thing I wanna say about this is, uh being conformed to christ how are we doing you guys want me to stop talking are we good can't actually answer that question can you it just means i'm being thoughtful philippians 2 6 through 11 if you if you only read one thing of paul i would i would recommend just reading philippians 2 i kind of i think uh, this isn't an original thought of mine other people have said this but i think they're right that Philippians 2 captures like all of Paul's thought in a nutshell. And then once it's pointed out, then you read his other letters and it's like, oh, it just pops off. So Paul's writing to the Philippians and he says, uh, uh, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full, being in full accord and in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. At this point, he's going to describe what the mind of Christ looks like. If we're baptized into Christ, 
and we're made a new creation, we're being conformed to the life of Christ. So our life should mirror what we see in Jesus, not as external imitation. Like Martin Luther had a big problem with looking at Christ's life as an example, like an external example that we try to imitate by doing the same things he does. He's right to criticize that. But what what the church has in mind, what Paul has in mind is not external imitation, but being conformed and becoming like Christ from the inside out. So if we become like Christ from the inside out, our life will look like this. Who, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, Michael Gorman, he's a he's a scripture guy, um, so I'm stealing all of this from him. Uh, he points out there's there's a threefold pattern to what Paul points here or explains here. So first, there's some status. Jesus has this status, even though he was in the form of God. He, but he, he renounces self-interest. And instead, the third part is he seeks to serve. So even though he was in the form of God, he had this status, he renounces self-interest. He does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he empties himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And this isn't, this isn't like, you could also say even because he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped. God is, the very character of God, is the one who goes to the cross. Like that's just in his nature. So if we're baptized into the cross, we become the people who go to the cross for others, who renounce our self-interest for the sake of serving others. So Paul will use this uh, elsewhere in his letters. Like he had the right to um, be paid by the church for all of his works, but he doesn't want to put an obstacle in front of the gospel for anybody. So he renounces that right. And instead he becomes a tent maker uh, to support himself. That, that's just one example, a very concrete example in Paul's life. Uh, I would encourage you I mean, to reflect. I'm horrible at living this out myself, but I'm good at encouraging other people to think about it. You know, how might this pattern fit, fit your life? Okay. So that's, that's what the life of a baptized Christian should look like. People should look at us and see, that's the person who will go to the cross. Now, preparing for baptism. Oh, and what I say about baptism, it applies the same for confirmation. So confirmation completes baptism. It originally was done at the same time as baptism, um, but because the church wanted to stress, uh, wanted a confirmation to be done by the bishop to stress the unity with the church that confirmation, you know, signifies, uh, it was separated because the bishop can't go around baptizing everybody that needs to be baptized. So as historically, that's why I got got separated. Um, but confirmation completes it and deepens the grace of baptism. So being, being equipped with gifts for service, that's deepened with, with confirmation. 
um, uh, putting on Christ and being conformed to Christ that's deepened with confirmation. It becomes even more alive with confirmation. Your unity with the church and fellow Christians is deepened and strengthened with confirmation. So preparing, uh, preparing for, for baptism, preparing for confirmation. Uh, there, one thing I, just one thing I want to say is there's a difference between valid reception of the sacraments and fruitful reception of the sacraments. So somebody, for example, can go to communion and receive the host every day and not experience any change in their life because they're not actually repenting. They're not actually turning, turning around. Uh, so they they like force the grace of the sacrament to do nothing in their life. Uh, whereas somebody else who's very open, uh, open to God's grace, can receive communion once a month. And not that I'm encouraging when they receive it once a month, but can receive it very infrequently, but be be impacted all the more from that uh, from that reception. So same thing with baptism. Baptism works whether you whether you like it or not, as long as it's administered validly. Like somebody actually uses water and actually says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, but somebody can be so closed off to repentance that even though it leaves a mark on your soul, it doesn't transform you until you actually you allow it to. Because God, God isn't a coercive God. Same thing with confirmation. Confirmation, the graces will be there, but they can't like flourish. They can't, they can't, uh, hate to turn it into a physical thing. Can't be released, so to speak, without your permission. Uh, the room you allow for it uh, in your life. So parents, you can, you can think about how to encourage your, your children as they prepare for confirmation, how to help them become more open to grace. I don't know how to do it. But I, I'm sure you can you can think of a lot of, of great ways to do it. Or other people in the room, I'm sure. If you chat with other parents, they would have deep insights. All right. And then lastly, what this means for the community, uh, if we're baptized into Christ, we're supposed to reflect Christ's unity. Uh, we're supposed to embody the peace that Christ gives. So the peace that Christ gives isn't, isn't Primarily an internal piece. Uh, somebody can severely struggle with anxiety, but still have the peace of Christ. The peace that Christ gives is peace that reconciles us to the Father and reconciles us to our brothers and sisters. And so a community that that embodies the gospel, that's conformed to Christ, is, is a community that seeks to establish peace with within the community, but also peace with, with neighbors. Uh, so what I wanted to just stress is baptism and confirmation are not just about the individual, uh, they're primarily about the individual, but the, through those sacraments, the individual is grafted into the community and the community is supposed to be the body, the, the, the temple is one. I feel like I'm repeating myself. We're supposed to be one. All right. So that's, that's it. That's all I got. If you have any questions, let me know. Otherwise, here, I'll, I'll refresh this real quick. Thank you all for coming. This has been fun. Oh, um, couple, is the right of marriage, if the right of marriage has such high importance, why are priests not allowed to marry? Is a precedent for that from the Old Testament as well? 
You. Um, so Paul will talk about people receiving two kinds of gifts. So Paul, the best guess is Paul was married and he's a widow, um, a widower. Uh, and then he chose not to remarry for the sake of devoting his, his life wholeheartedly to the Lord. There's a debate about that. Uh, but by the time he's writing his letters, he's not married. And he says, I wish all y'all were like me because then you could devote your whole heart to the Lord. But then he says, different people are given different gifts. So it's not that marriage is evil or bad and religious life and priesthood is, is better. And it's just about the gift that God gives you. Um, not all priests are required to not get married. So priests in the West, maybe this is too much detail. Priests in the West have traditionally um, not been allowed to marry, but priests in the East have been allowed to, to marry. Um, so it's just, I mean, that's the kind of thing that could change. Like theoretically, Pope Francis could come out tomorrow and say, I release all priests from the obligation uh, not to get married. I don't think he's going to do that, but theoretically he could. Is it required that the bread used for communion be a specific kind of bread? In other words, in dire circumstances, could a priest celebrate a mass with any kind of bread available? Oh, I don't know all the specifics about it. Um, as far as I know, bread, what's important about the sacraments is they signify. Um, so it's not necessarily about like the, the, the chemical makeup of the bread. Um, rather, when you look at it and taste it and touch it, does it actually signify bread or does it signify, you know, cracker or cupcake? Or, I mean, there's a there's been some weird things that people have used for, for communion. So in, in normal circumstances, only unleavened bread in the West is allowed for, for communion. In the East, leavened bread is allowed for communion. Um, in dire circumstances, I know, I know stories of priests who have been in prison, haven't had any bread except, you know, or, or wine except for stuff they wouldn't usually use for communion, but they've done it. I assume it's kosher, but I don't know. Good question for Father Hall when he gets back. All right, should we close in prayer? In the name of the Father, and the Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Enjoy your night, everybody.